BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I got friends only want to talk business. I got expensive because winning is expensive. I got expensive because winning is expensive. I've been out of work. Hi, and welcome to Put That Copy Down, the freight sales podcast for closers. My name is Kevin Hill. I'm your host, as always, as we talk about the sales game in freight. And we are going to talk about supply chains. We're to talk about offshoring, nearshoring, reshoring, and the sales that, that go as part of that with IGL Logistics. We have a couple great guests in-house. We have Jim Burke. He's the president over at IGL Logistics and Alan Levesque. He's a vice president of sales. And we are going to talk about domestic, international, talk a lot about cross-border and kind of what they're seeing in uh, the market. So welcome, guys, to the show. Thank, Thank you, Kevin. So Appreciate, Appreciate it. You bet. Uh, Jim, uh, let's start with a couple brief introductions. Jim, uh, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, Jim Burke, uh, president around IGL Logistics. Uh, Domiciled here in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina today, uh, getting ready to wrap this up and uh, head out to Nashville for a couple of days. My, my nephew's getting drafted in the AHL, so uh, as soon as we're done here, we're headed to Tennessee for that. Oh, awesome. Oh, that's very cool. Alan? Yeah, Alan Levesque, Vice President of Sales with IGO Logistics. Um, well, Jim and I have been with the company since its beginning in 2017 into 2018, so excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. And you guys do uh, a mix of domestic and international, uh, that being offshore and nearshore, um, heavy cross-border presence, which I, I really like because I started out in freight brokerage uh, going into and out of Mexico. A lot of my, my flatbed loads were going in and out there. I lived down in Laredo for about six months and kind of learned the game. So always like talking cross-border freight. Um, so you guys do a little bit of all that, right? little bit of everything. We're a traditional freight forwarder. Uh, we certainly have a, a large presence here in the States, whether that's uh, traditional freight forwarding, LTL, truckload services, um, ground expedite, and, and air freight and charter, things of that nature on the domestic side. Internationally, we're dealing with, with customers all over the world, um, you know, import, export, both air and ocean. And as you mentioned, uh, um, you know, have doing that cross-border presence that we have established in El Paso and Mexico. And um, over the past few years, been heavily involved in warehousing distribution, um, some of which was spurred by the by the COVID pandemic. But uh, a lot of other things have come, come about since then that have sort of ignited that market. Yeah, the cross-border market is, uh, you know, can you describe it kind of guys? Um during COVID, you know, how it changed and how it's changed post-COVID now, uh, some of the, the the main drivers of the, it says the U.S.-Mexico trade. Sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's ever-evolving, Kevin, as what we see is uh, during COVID, I think, like anything that the sheer panic, everything just shut down cold, so you couldn't get to or from, panic everywhere. Um, things started to loosen up, demands for PPE primarily were the driver of uh, most units mm -hmm. going to or from across there. And we uh, we certainly had our share of that. 
um, it spawned into, um, you know, uh, a kind of a lead follow, you know, the, the Mexican border tends to follow what the U S does. It takes a little bit of a lag sometimes to do it. And, you know, and during the times of uncertainty, we didn't know if, um, you know, anything was going to restart again or not, but eventually the, the good old economic engine fired back up and, um, clients started saying, we got to move forward, but certainly a little different, you know, a lot of pair down, a lot of customers pair down, a lot of Maquila shut down and got rid of a lot of their staff. Mm-hmm. So I think we're witnessing this whole new age of, uh, figuring out how to operate remotely, but you can't build things remotely. You got to have staff on the floor. So people like us still have to be involved in, in touching and feeling the goods coming to and from the border. You too, you know, and, and I just remember the, the, the auto manufacturing, right? Uh, shutting down production, um, the, the whole supply chain issues. A lot of that is uh, down in, in Mexico, Guanajuato, and, and kind of, you know, north of, of Mexico City. You know, you have the, the hub of, of auto manufacturers there, and there's that, that push and pull, you know, produce, stop, produce, stop. And um, it, it, was, it was pretty chaotic for over 12 months, I think. Oh, easily over 12 months for sure. Um, a lot of a lot of things that we've seen come out of it. Um, as we've come out of it, certainly the the automotive market you've mentioned is has turned back around, specifically in the you know in Mexico. You know, which brings this whole idea of nearshoring to the top of the table. Something that a lot of people are talking about. A lot of companies are very interested in delving into it. Already doing in many cases, try to get some control over. Um, their supply chains and bring things a little closer where they can, you know, keep an eye on it, uh, obviously reduce costs in some case, um, and just generally have closer proximity to their operations. Yeah, I, um, I've interviewed Rosemary Cates, who's the, uh, the, the director of the, the Reshoring Institute organization or association uh, a couple times in a couple different formats here at Freight Waves. And it's really great in-depth um, information about the struggles and and really i should say challenges of moving your manufacturing from from offshore back to reshoring or nearshoring i'll define uh those terms for for everybody uh listening right now is is offshoring is traditionally overseas right it's far away nearshoring is is closer to your home domiciled company or country so that is like mexico central america maybe even south parts of South America. Um, and then reshoring is coming back production, manufacturing in the, the U.S. So when we talk about reshoring, it's U.S. Nearshoring, we're going to be talking Latin America, uh, Mexico mostly, and then offshoring would probably be Asia, Eastern Europe, um, the, that type of thing. So in your conversations with, with clients and prospects, um, are you hearing more about exploring the challenges or exploring the options of moving manufacturing away from, especially Asia, right? I mean, uh, this has been talked about quite a bit. A lot of people do. Can you give us some highlights of, of those conversations, decision-making processes? Sure. Yeah. Now we've, um, during our first quarter of this year, especially we had a lot of meetings with, uh, C-suite level executives, uh, logistics managers from our existing clients, prospects. I think there's uh, two sets of challenges going on. One is, you know, the ongoing, I won't, I won't call it a struggle, but the, the the strife between the United States and China with the tariffs, it's uh, caused a, a really large uh, mark on uh, being competitive, uh, first thing. Um, second is, 
you know, nobody wants to be held hostage again to feeling like, wow, I can't get cargo. I can't get basic staple needs back here. So I think a lot of the C-suite executives, uh, maybe they didn't know how and when and where to go about it, but in the back of their minds and there's those incubation tanks, you know, those boardrooms, there's an awful lot of discussions about how do we not let this happen in the future, which trickle down to folks like us in, in the trade industry and transportation industry of where, where's the best location, you know, just, just kind of spitballing ideas out about how to do it. And then looking at good old fashioned facts, you know, what, what parts of the world can actually support this and what do we need to do? And then going to their legislatures and stuff to uh, find out if they can uh, get this economic engine going here in the U.S. Um, and, and as recent as we, we, we made these conversations specifically as we were attending a trade conference for our own global partner network, which was down in Cartagena, Colombia in April. Um, and the mm-hmm. main focus of that group, we had our partners from Europe, some from Asia, but a lot of Latin America, heavy, heavy focus on Latin and South America. And the main question, the main topic was, okay, so what are we hearing? What are we going to do about it? And, and you know, what's the industry going to do to, to kind of keep up with this? And what we've collaborated on together after speaking with many of our partners there is that they're signing a course, they're signing up a USMCA. Uh, we've got, I think, a few countries uh, since April have signed up with the get on board. And they're really looking at this as a major opportunity to take that shift away from China take it away from East Asia place and put it here right in, you know, Mexico, in Latin America, in South America. And if they do this correctly and properly, then, you know, they're staying a benefit for many, many years to come. It's it's going to take a shift, though. It's many years in the making. It's already started, but it's going to take some years before this supply chain settles itself down and select suppliers in Latin America. And I think that's an important point. It's going to take many years. Um, I, right, I I remember, uh, you know, tariff season and then into COVID, you know, there's maybe about a year, 12 months elapsed there, but I was looking at, because, you know, moving production out of China started about the time that the, the tariffs started. And um, you look at Vietnam, right? Everyone's talking about Vietnam. Well, there's some constraints to that, right? I mean, Vietnam trading partner wise at that point was about 10% of what China is. So you, you have manufacturing facilities that need to be built, you, workforces that need to be trained. And also infrastructure, uh, getting those products from the manufacturing plant to ports, right? And then you have ports, right? Can they handle the traffic? You know, one of the the the, the, the attractive things about China is the population, the workforce, um, and also the number of ports, right? It's very easy to ship out of there. So logistics plays a huge role in where you set your manufacturing base up and all of those things to, to develop to the point where it can handle at scale is years, decades ago right. sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there are also obviously existing contracts in place um, yep. that, that would have to either run their course or be renegotiated. So that that's going to take time, and that's another factor as well. Yeah, so I, I think the moral of this, right, is that it doesn't happen overnight. It's right. something that we're going to be talking about reshoring, nearshoring, for the, the next decade. I believe so. I think that's really the focus. And, you know, as we're trying to educate and get educated at the same time, it's how do you get out ahead of this? What, what do you what do you do to get ahead of it? How do you, um, you know, embrace your clients and prospects and try to help them with these decisions? And look, it's 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 not easy for a lot. You know, where do I pick? Do I pick a country? Do I pick a supplier? Do I have to pick a certain no. product line? There's a lot that goes into that. There's no set best answer currently, but 
the indicators are that a lot of this, especially on the nearshoring side, are really looking at uh, Mexico and Latin America to step it up. But I'll say that after being in you know Cartagena with our, our group in uh, April, there is a lot of powerful, strong um, South American countries that have great horsepower to manufacture. And if they can get a little bit of support from their governments to really get, a, get that engine going, we're going to have a lot of that trade shift over here eventually. But it will take time. It's going to disrupt the, the normal status of things. Um, and I think that's yep. really where the struggle is going to be, especially on providers in our world. There's going to be so much uncertainties and so much change. Uh, it's going to lead to a um, little bit of chaos, a little bit of confusion, and but a lot of opportunity, I think, as it transacts uh, in the world. So uh, we feel like we're in a good place to be poised for it. We're here to support our clients. We're giving them options of different locations, different suppliers. And um, they, they, they really are looking on, leaning on us for some guidance and you know, some are way more vocal than others. Um, uh, but we feel like, again, if we can just continue to be a good support for our clients and just give them outlets and resources to look at, you know, we don't have we don't have all the answers. We don't say we do, but certainly giving them a direction to go in and and kind of look at. It's been very helpful and beneficial for all parties to try to help them make better decisions that ultimately lead to them doing what they want. Because it's it's not a matter of if, it's when. They made a lot of these decisions. It's mm-hmm. just taking time to flesh out through their organizations, through their clients downstream. And ultimately, as you said, it's a it's a multi-year process. Um, they're not super vocal. They don't want to stand on top of a, you know, the, the, the mountain and really shelter what they're doing. I mean, there's a lot of political things involved and legislative things involved. So I imagine as that trickles through over the next, like I said, five to 10 years, we'll see a reshaping and a reshifting, but um, we certainly see it coming for sure. Yeah, there's uh, there's the... <coughs> domestic political issues to, to, to work through. There's international political issues as well. You know, there, there's a lot of political risk out there um, with Asia, with China, and specifically, right, um, you see crazy things in the world, what happened in Russia uh, the, this past week, um, you know, making large bets on a specific geography, specific country to, to go all in on again or maybe not all in, but, you know, place a heavy bet uh, is is a nerve-wracking decision for anybody. Well, it has to be, for sure. And, and uh, there's a lot of risk involved, but there's a lot of reward. And, and the reward is, you know, ultimately, if we can bring it back to the United States, the, you know, the biggest challenge there right now is the cost. And in my opinion, the availability of, of infrastructure to, to house these buildings to, to manufacture products. And a lot of that came from the COVID effect of large corporations figuring out that, wait a second, I can, I can have productive employees work from home. I don't have to have these big buildings, warehouses, logistics teams. I can outsource that to a third party and have people work from home just as productive as they were, in some cases more productive. And I don't have to lease or buy these large facilities Mm -hmm. to run, to run my supply chain. Um, I can. I could save on costs from that sense, but the crunch is here now that we've been seeing for quite some time is it's hard to find the buildings because they're just not there, particularly in certain markets. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Yeah, Jim. The the other part to that, uh, well, what Alan just said was, you know, as as those boardrooms are looking again as to what we got to do, the capital infrastructure, um, the human resources. It's it's no secret, you know, we it's harder and harder and harder to find people that want to come in and do a lot of these types of jobs. Um, so the easier to outsource it and just have it as a transactional line item on a, on a on a company P and L is a lot harder than staffing, managing, investing in capital, uh, long term gains and things. So. We understand that that's um, you know a, a little bit of a nuance for some of the uh, companies that are out there, but there's there's very large corporations completely looking at remodeling themselves, and uh, we we've, we've been hearing this more and more as far as really focusing on their core business and outsourcing more and more of that logistics, warehouse distribution, kitty packaging, final mile stuff that traditionally they housed internally because they want to control and quality. They're struggling. They're struggling to do the same thing that we are, and I said, well, you know what? Why not just put it as a line item out here? Will metrics hold you accountable uh, uh, as a third-party warehouse or third-party distributor for us? And then we'll focus on our core business making widgets. Uh, I think that's really where it comes back to again. I, I think so too. And there's, there's points in there. And one of those is over the last, say, two decades, 20 years, 30 years maybe since the, the real rise of globalization, supply chain has been an efficiency play. It's been a, a profit squeeze, right? It's become so efficient with very little redundancies in there, and it's because it's become so safe. It was traditionally safe. It was somewhere to squeeze some margins. Uh, you're always looking at cost reduction, becoming as efficient as possible just in time, right? Was was the, the key buzzword, and then COVID came in and introduced a bunch of risk into the supply chain and the the thoughts behind that is not so much as it's efficiency play it's 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 you need redundancies built in to where you can get product on the shelf when it needs to be put on the shelf right uh do you see that that change in philosophy behind how uh sales supply chains are ran absolutely um we we hear a lot of uh, business contingency planning is the bcp word is out there everywhere it's mm-hmm. uh, it's an acronym that's been buzzing around for a long time, but it's certainly really hitting us from, you know, not just your 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 Fortune 50 companies, but all the way down at your tier two, tier three suppliers. They want to know about continuity, what they can do to be nimble and quick. And again, the logistics and the supply chain piece is one of those areas where if if they don't have fixed costs with people and assets and equipment. They can they can open up in multiple locations, so it gives them this ability to be more flexible and nimble without having the long term rest. So there's a bit of a trade off there, as you know, in our in our space, you know, we we need to have some kind of contractual obligations, obviously, to keep our capital equipment going. But mm-hmm. when we blend it over the course of multiple clients, the risk is less. So we are able to take on more of their risk and and hedge some of our type of industry risk. So. I think that's a win-win, and that's what we're looking at here is trying to create that win-win for these companies that are looking to go through this transition, that are looking to try to find a way to, um, you know, compete and get new new suppliers uh, closer to the shore, whether it's onshore or near shore. Um, and really, again, that's that's kind of why we've we've kind of gone through this and, and speaking today is that we feel like it's really hitting down to the more granular levels of uh, day-to-day business. Um, it's talking, you know, from million-dollar companies to multi-billion-dollar companies, they're all in it together. And, and guys, I mean, when we look at companies with really good supply chains, right, who run it internally really well, they, they oftentimes they have their own fleet, they have their, they're, they're running 
an entire business segment within their own company. It goes back to what Jim was talking about, uh, about, um, you know, outsourcing, focusing on core business, right? Is that there are very few companies out there that, that run really great supply chains and they run it as a business. And, and oftentimes they'll spin it off into uh, their own logistics business. And that's kind of the, the thought you need to have if you're a corporation and you're going to house all of your logistics needs. But that's something that most companies just don't want to do and they shouldn't do because it is very complex uh, and very few actually pull it off. Right, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. It is complex. And just like making turbochargers is complex, we don't really get involved in this. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the same thing where, um, you know, we have an area of expertise. We've had a lot of experience. Folks in our company are very experienced. have done this a long time. And yet everything changes, right? So you have to mm-hmm. adjust on the fly. And I don't think that's much different than what the manufacturers are dealing with. And so, yeah, if they can bring in expertise... On from from the outside, as opposed to yep. trying to build logistics organizations within theirs, you, I think the chances of success are greater. Yeah, because I, most companies don't want to do that. I can only count probably on, on both hands companies that have been able to do that, right? And uh, it's not for the the, the faint of heart. Um, Jim, let's talk about Mexico. I, I think it's a really good blue, blue point prep to for nearshoring, reshoring moving your supply chain around i think uh out of all the countries out there i think mexico probably has uh the infrastructure built right now in the proximity to the u.s consumer uh to in the history right a couple decades now three decades actually um i'm getting old uh that they've been doing this and um it's a, it's a great case study for for nearshoring yeah, I, I am fresh off the heels of uh, just coming off the trip a few weeks ago uh, with our Mexico team, uh, visiting a lot of clients and prospects. And and to your point, Kevin, speaking a lot about just this topic, um, you know, they all build stuff, whether it's automotive or aerospace or interiors or medical. Um, you have a lot of clients that we had just discussed, and, and, and this is still an extremely hot topic for them as what they're seeing and hearing trickling down from the United States corporations primarily is that there's more and more large-scale projects to take on more ramp-up in production of, of materials either they had done in the past or brand new lines of product. You know, um, a lot of the EV-driven products that are out there as well from the um, automotive mm-hmm. sector is a big part of that. But make no mistake, I mean, if, if it's from tile to uh, tires to, uh, you know, like Alan said, suit turbochargers, um, they're, they're, yeah, they're really looking at this. And the real neat thing to me is after sitting down and talking uh, with most of these uh, folks uh, the last couple of weeks was just how focused they are on their long term plan. Very focused on this. They're also looking at this as, wow, we're having to scale up some some cases, 300 percent of the resources that they have that they've been accustomed to. COVID took them down 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. They've been scaling back. Some have come all the way back. Some have not there yet. But now they're looking at their um, their backlog, their projects, and they're literally looking at, wow, we're going to have to hire another 50, 75, 100% more employees and expand space all at the same time to keep up with this production. So the good thing is that you know there is a good workforce uh, in most of those markets and Mexico specifically, but in Latin America as well. Um, and I do believe that 
a lot of the uh, corporations that are utilizing uh, you know the suppliers in those markets are going to benefit um, as a result and be able to scale even faster than they perhaps were in China after some time goes by. But there's a couple of hurdles there too, right? They, they got some political issues. They got some challenges to get through. There's a little bit of um, unfortunate uh, corruption and crime that, that kind of trickles through. So I, I think those are the challenges that got to get weighed out um, and over time, but hopefully will. Yeah, there, there's definitely political risk in, in Mexico that, that you have to, to, to handle. Uh, one of the, the, the great benefits, I think, is that you can get on a plane just about anywhere in the States and be down there in a few hours. Right. right. So if you need to, to go check out your manufacturing, right, Alan, you, you, can, you can get on a plane. And if you need product up to one of your manufacturing plants in the U.S., um, or if you need to get still down to a manufacturing plant in, in Mexico, it's relatively uh, short transit time. Right. Yeah. And that's that's why the, the nearshoring seems like the stepping stone to reshoring. Uh, particularly in Mexico because of the location. I mean, that's the obvious benefit, but yes, the ability to have a little bit more control, be able to be on site um, on, our, on a regular basis if needed are, are two of the key benefits and certainly cost reduction um, being a big part of that as well. Jim, I have a question because um, I haven't broken a load to our, uh, Mexico for five, six, seven years now. Um, how's... <laughs> How's the customs process? Is it a little bit more automated um, these days than it was uh, a few years ago? Has it shown any improvement? So U.S. side um, is is has got a, a little bit more automated. Uh, Mexico side, they got a little ways to go still. Um, I think you know, um, just again demystifying the border process is what we like to say. Is yeah, a lot of people look at that imaginary line and. There's a lot of paperwork that goes back and forth in order to get processed. And, and really, it's it's just a matter of, you know, the speed and the magnitude of which it's done at. And I think that's been a challenge specifically on the Mexican side is understanding how what can we do to ease that burden. So the good part is a lot of the Mexican brokers and, and the associations and there have been getting together and they actually have been getting improvements on automation that are supposed to be supposed to be coming through this year um, that we hope to see that. Um, which will help down in just simple paper things where you literally still have a piece of paper that can cause a fine or a penalty to either the importer, the exporter, the carrier, or the warehouse that leaves that document. Um, and it's it's like currency. And it still boggles the mind in a paperless society today that we still have to get that punched with the right time and stamp on it to get it back. Almost like your your customs passport, you know, you get got to have mm-hmm. a stamp on it and turn back in or you get a penalty in, uh, you know, 180 days from now. So, we hope that process continues to refine. Um, we we do feel that this new age of um, the, the reshoring is going to push that. I, I feel like the customer, the consumer is going to demand that. Um, and the Mexican authorities are going to have to step that game up in order to compete at the level of transactions that they're going to get. Because it's just going to increase dramatically. There will be no peak. It'll just be a constant upward trend. And they have to adapt to it. So I hope for our sake and all the consumers' sake in the States as well that they do that. Um, how, how far they are along, I, I really don't know, Kevin. I don't have that crystal ball, but I sure hope they're putting their pedal to the metal. That's for sure. I, I do too, because I always quoted three days. And I know there's programs that accelerate a little bit, but three days was always your safety vest. Uh, three days to, to clear customs. And I think um, 
if the trends continue and nearshoring becomes more popular, you're going to have to get rid of the three days and and get it turned around much faster, right, Alan? Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's that always been a challenge with um, you know doing the cross border shipments. You've got to have alignment on both sides, not only with customs but on the transportation side, and so. You know, it, it has become a bottleneck. We've certainly seen that in the El Paso market in Laredo, and it creates some challenges that need to need to definitely be opened up in some sense to streamline that process a little bit better. And then there's the infrastructure piece of it, which is just physically getting the trucks to and from, uh, you know, each country. Yes, yeah. is another thing that's that's got to be looked at as part of this process because you can put all this business in Mexico that's going to come into the States or vice versa. And you, you have to physically get it there too. That's, that's, that's the biggest part. So, uh, a lot of that needs to be looked at and, and addressed. And, and that of course is going to take time as we talked about. It does. That's, that's a big issue. I was only thinking about that is, you know, once I got things down to Laredo, I had I'd have to, to get a Dre operator to pull the, the, the Mexican trailer or one of our trailers across the bridge uh, into the yard of the Mexican trucking companies I was, I was going to use, and then that would be repowered and driven, you know, wherever uh, the, the, it may be. And um, that, that could be an ordeal as well, because things get busy down there. I mean, it's just a hustling place, you know, whether you're in Alaska or Laredo or any of those major border crossings, uh, you, you have to find capacity to, to make all of those moves for your customers. And it's challenging, right, Jim? Absolutely. Um, you know, and 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 as to what you're saying, there's there's a lot of peaks and valleys there for demand and capacity. Um, we, we run through seasonality shifts, whether it's mm-hmm. um, automotive uh, that's that's boosted up, or we had shortages of uh, appliances and refrigerators for a while. It absolutely flooded the uh, the border there for a while. Um, so that's going to continue on. But to back up what you're saying, you know, we we do have another trade partner in this thing uh, called Canada, north of us. So they seem to have done a pretty good job with the U.S. and putting a PAPS and PARS program together that really has streamlined the efficiency of moving across the border with electronic information. And getting back to that, really, in order for Mexico to become more competitive, they're going to have to embrace a very large-scale initiative, very similar to that. In fact, they could just literally mirror it, and it would probably be a really good idea in my point. But until they do that and then and and then maybe nationalize that driver pool again as far as allowing um qualified you know safety concern uh trucks and drivers to enter into the states and vice versa uh, that would also help uh, open up the capacity uh unfortunately i don't see that happening uh in the near term there's probably a lot more hurdles to jump but i do feel like there's a trend shifting that way and if more and more business hits the uh, latin american market as a supplier, they're inevitably going to have to make the shift, or they'll they'll choke on all this, and uh, you know then then we'll have another decade of what do we do now that it's all there. There'll be some you know forced political issues to take place. So we're hopeful that the electronic age will come out and some automation and artificial intelligence helps us uh, streamline the process a little bit here. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the, the Canadian border is a whole different world than the the southern border with Mexico when when you're talking about freight and logistics and we pointed out some of those hurdles you know Alan and, and Jim uh, between those two but but Canada it's it's amazing because in Canada we're, we're going in and out of Canada as a freight broker I get to the point where I didn't even have to deal with 
customs whatsoever. That the carrier had everything set up. I forget the acronyms of of, of it all. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just basically you just passed through the border, right? And and U.S. drivers freely went into Canada. Canadian drivers freely come into the U.S. You know, there's limitations on how they get out. Yeah. Um, but and that that could be relaxed maybe a little bit too. That 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 help out uh, quite a bit, but um. But but you go into to Mexico and it's a whole different process. Yeah, so that's right. that's where we feel the um the, the entire warehouse part of the business is really going to boom. And um, obviously, it, you've been down that way. You see uh, border cities literally populated with just warehouses and transborder yards, drop yards, trail oh, yeah. yards. It's unbelievable. Um, and so we feel like that that trend is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I think it's going to increase at least for the next year, even two. Um, until maybe some of these rules are put in place and formalized and finalized between the countries. So we know how how laws take a really short time to act between countries. So I I think that warehouse and distribution is going to be a major opportunity. And the the entities that do that well and partner with the right people are going to be able to support their clients' needs more efficiently and help them kind of make this nearshoring to reshoring efforts go a little more seamlessly uh, in the years it is, and I have a guest on the show a couple times. I, I'm blanking on his name right now. Super guy, but he's uh, the economic development coordinator for the, the city of Laredo, and uh, he's always coming out with more warehouse, more warehousing, bigger warehousing space. I mean, it is such a booming uh, market, placing warehouses down along the, the, the border. I, I'm sure uh, you see the same thing in, in El Paso as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. We've uh, we've we've had a pretty exhaustive search in those markets, and uh, you know, it's it's as quickly as buildings come available, they go. Obviously, they they can't put them up fast enough, and you know, the shortages of, of uh, supplies to be able to, to do these things um, definitely definitely impacted a lot of the the building timelines that were set, and so everything's kind of been pushed back. But I, I know there's great efforts being made to, to, to build up that infrastructure and those facilities to, to be able to support it. It's just like everything else, the, the supply chains slow down and and the production takes a little bit longer than you expect. And so the whole process kind of, and it, at the same time, all companies like ours and others are looking to, you know, fill these spaces and, and there's a greater demand for that. So it's, uh, it's definitely been a challenge from that standpoint. And that was Teclo Garcia. That, that's the, the the person down at Laredo. He's he's no longer with City of Laredo. He's he's got his own business. I think that is, is probably to uh, to coordinate efforts to to bring in economic development of those warehouses, those those facilities uh, along this side of the border. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what are some other trends that you're seeing, whether it's cross border or international, or uh, things that that most people aren't thinking about? I think. A lot of it's derived around labor in general, just labor. Um, you think about everything that goes on inside the walls of a manufacturing plant and whether you're making foodstuffs or teddy bears or, again, you know, turbochargers. There just seems to be uh, labor issues everywhere. And I feel like, um, again, traditional warehouse distributors were actually, you know, being given a- other opportunities to become more ingrained on doing some additional work as it revolves to, again, traditionally kitting or packing, but there's, there's more 
more light assembly. There's more um, merge transit deliver that goes on where we're integrating with not only the customer, but their client at the final mile. We're being asked to electronically exchange data to keep them informed of what's happening. So I think just again, our, our industry as a whole is really being tasked to do more. Um, what else can you do for me? Because whether they're saying it directly to you or not, they're struggling with labor and labor uh, leads to needing more automation. Uh, either they have it and they invest in it and it's not their issue or they look to outsource it to someone who has more labor or has some automation or both. It can give them a value add. So the old uh, value added service is really strong right now. Anything you can do to add service from a value yep. perspective is something that uh, a client really looks at. The soft costs of doing it on the, their own has really started to add up. I think, uh, again, a lot of the the people that are dotting I's and crossing T see it and they're saying, hey, we need to uh, get that off our books and put it someplace else. So, yeah, that's- you're exactly right. Go ahead, Alan. I was going to say it's it's a huge problem and we see it across all industries. We we do a lot of participation in business roundtable type things and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, if it's construction or food service or logistics, manufacturing, everyone has the same problem and that is trying to dedicate the time and resources to to source the, the right people, right? The qualified people, the people that are hungry and, and uh, want to get the job done. And every time we, this conversation comes up, it's the same story is I can win more business. I can take on more jobs or projects, customers, but I need to have a, a people to execute it. And that's the challenge, right? And that's the challenge that we're all facing in, in terms mm-hmm. of economic growth. You guys, uh, Jim started off, you finished off, Alan, great points on soft costs. Soft costs, opportunity costs, um, however you want to frame that, it is the, those hidden costs that, that aren't directly measured that I don't think enough salespeople really delve into and, and talk about um, because those are the, the, the deal makers and deal breakers or those, those hidden costs that, you know, going out and, and finding labor, right? How much resources, you know, and time and money and efforts and failures does that that cost your organization, right? We can take care of that, right? We can yeah. take care of this. We we can take care of the things that you don't want to do, and that's people buy things that they don't want to do, right? I go to a restaurant not to learn how to cook, but to, to eat great cooking. <laughs> I'll get good service, <laughs> and to get good service, yes, right. Kind of like operating the machines at the grocery store, the scanners, right? We never got any training on this, but yet we're uh, yeah, that, I mean, you have to utilize this technology and know how to do it, right? I know, but I, I still rather go through. I, I don't, I you know, I, I use the the automated self checkout, but I don't like it. I like talking to the cashier. You know, right. you you might learn something. Um, you know, a tip or a trick or whatever. You know, having a conversation. Um, let, let's go back to hiring. Um. Yeah, hiring labor. You know the challenges that company ha- companies have. I have a question for 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 both of you. Right? Do you think that is a political issue, a demographic issue, maybe an economic issue? And, and I say demographics because of the, the the baby boomer generation and kind of all throughout the world. You have this this huge baby boom, and the demographics are changing. The world is kind of getting smaller population wise, even as it expands. Um, yeah, there's how much does that feed into it? Well, I mean, 
that's a you know it could be a political landmine to step on this one but um (laughs) there's a lot of factors um you know uh that go into it um but certainly i believe that just uh the constant declining birth rate uh globally um has absolutely impacted uh we're, we're hitting that crossroads where declining birth rates have finally crossed over for the first time i believe it was last year if i'm not mistaken the uh, the rate of the people that are getting in, retired uh, in the world or uh, leaving out. So it's putting more on technology. That's why this boon in artificial intelligence is, is taking a great new heights, which I think we all at some point um, need to do more participation and in, in, in assimilate that into our business. And, and we're certainly trying to do that in different areas. Um, but again, without you know labeling or putting demographics in it, there are certain segments of the business as uh, the younger workers, future workers of, of the world, uh, they don't want to be in a tractor trailer driving a truck. They don't want to be in a forklift operator making a delivery. They don't want to be auto- running automation equipment. Um, you know, I think the, the lure of uh, Google and Apple and programming and, you know, sitting behind goggles yeah. is very appealing. And you know what? They're making a, a great impact on society. They're making a lot of money doing it and they're changing the world. But the reality is people still got to get stuff from point A to point B. And it takes, you know, people in our industry to uh, step up to that challenge. And we've had to be very creative as it relates to hiring um, and especially in retention, um, you know, mm-hmm. makes good work environments. Uh, we're not perfect. We, you know, we, we, we're always evolving to this area. And I think that's really one of the, the key things is, you have to be open to evolve. There's nothing stays the same, you know, nothing set in stone. I used to have a, a, a rock that was given to me and it said, nothing is set in stone. And I'm like, <laughs> I on my desk to this day. And if, if, if you think it is, then you're a fool and you're going to get bypassed, but we have to evolve and uh, we keep doing that. And, uh, you know, for the most part, knock on wood, we've, we've been fairly successful at navigating that issue, but you know, we've had our challenges as well. We've had our turnover issues, trying to keep some people happy and Sometimes um, the, the, the day now is you used to work for a company, you know, and you promote yourself right up to the top. And now it's, you know, how many jumps can I make till I get where I'm at a comfort level, a lifestyle level? And then there's a stagnation period and there's a big gap next step. And that's what we're starting to see. So you either have to jump way up or you have to get a good train training module to get your team and keep them happy. And, you know, again, we're not perfect, but certainly like everybody, it's it's a struggle. It's a challenge. And it's real, and uh, we've had our share of it. But knock on wood, we've managed to uh, get a pretty good staff together over the years and, and keep them motivated and uh, to let them keep tiring from within as well. To promote, train, and develop, I think is back and just keep yeah. keep them keep them promoted, train them, develop them, give them what they deserve, and then you know hopefully that the client sees that the business flow is they're they're getting continuity in their business and they want to keep doing more with you, so you can afford to keep doing it. Yeah, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, over the past, you know, five or six years, uh, particularly recruiting and retention has become so much larger a percentage of what I would say a lot of leaders, uh, business leaders are having to, to spend their time on, where that wasn't necessarily the case 20 years ago um, in this business. Sure, it's always been hard to find truck drivers, and we hear about the driver shortage all the time, which is a real thing, a significant percentage of drivers. Class A drivers in the U.S. are over the age of 40, so that's a real challenge. You know, back in the 80s, 70s, it used to be cool to be a truck driver, but now, you know, 
you either have to go to college or learn a trade and and that's sort of fallen off for whatever reason i don't i don't know why um because there are lots of people that make an excellent living um you know either as a truck driver or as a in a skilled trade um you know i see it all around me personally and in business with just uh construction on homes for instance and trying to find somebody to something as simple as plumbing or hvac it's just there's just not enough folks doing those skilled trades any longer and uh, and it creates a number of challenges from there but from our perspective certainly you know the truck drivers creates a challenge um but but like jim said the skilled workers whether it's you know warehouse forklift operators um all those things definitely impact our business and it's harder and harder to find and retain it's amazing how many how much time you'll spend recruiting just to have people not even show up because they decided the commute was too far or um maybe there's something they didn't like about it but there's you just it's just uh it's it's a greater challenge from a number of different ways from a simple fact of communication to the time spent actually finding the right people you know competing with your competitors which you're always going to have to do for the for the good people and then being able to actually hire them and at a rate that makes sense for your business and, and that they're satisfied with and, and then keep them long term. I guess you can always make more money trading crypto on your couch. <laughs> Going to <laughs> <laughs> not always, but it's a good idea. Not always. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. It, it is, it's, it's just the, the world's kind of changed in that respect of, of, um, of talent, of, of building talent, of getting people to come in and, and work, and the whole game of of hiring and retention is 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 just changed. It's just changed at the, the margins right now. I think, um, and and everyone's just trying to find their way through it. Yeah, you know, the follow up with what Alan said along those lines. As you're going through all that, um, you know, our industries hit the same way as others there's still a demand on the logistics to reduce costs. It's that line item from a customer that says, hey, I need to take 4% out of my logistics budget this year. I'm like, well, well, you know, we have to give everybody, you know, three raises this year. Uh, we have a higher retention cost. We have a higher labor cost. Our insurance rates have gone through the roof. This yep. is another major issue that we should talk about eventually here is uh, this year has really seen a traumatic increase in insurance in our group across the board. As it relates to the major carriers not wanting to insure certain lines of risk anymore. So getting out of the all risk business, getting out of being super selective on what they will let you insure inside or outside the walls of a warehouse or on a truck. So those are massive challenges. And like anything else, when you take that on, you want to survive and go. That cost gets passed back to the consumer, met with resistance, as it always is. Um, and you have to negotiate and justify uh, why there's an X percentage of increase on your transportation or on your supply and warehouse. So this ultimately is that cyclical effect of if, if we're having less in society and we're expected to do more and the costs keep going up, it eventually comes back to being borne by the consumer at the end of the day or the manufacturing customer that's outsourcing the business to us. And we are the uh, proverbial middleman of having to be the deliverers of bad news. Like, uh, yes, and, uh, <laughs> we do get a bad rap in our industry for being, Hey, you guys are always overcharging me or it costs too much. Or my other guy last year did it for this. And, you know, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's just 
it's just a matter of catching up. The lag time where all this starts catching up is uh, is finally here. Uh, it you know there's usually a two to three year gap in all this stuff, but we're we're really seeing it and hearing it from clients now. We've had challenges with customers, but we've also been uh, benefactors and because of the same exact thing where we were able to be looked at for our change. So I, I think that's another issue that we have to look at probably in the in the future is how that's impacting business decisions. And Alan was talking about uh, recruiting drivers. Uh, what about warehouse workers? Is that even harder right now than drivers? It seems to, some of the headlines and and what I've heard, it's a little bit, it, it's very difficult. There, There's companies out there, major retailers right there, who are kind of running out of pool of qualified applicants in the population um, for for warehouse working. You know, it's it, it seems like that's more challenging right now than, than drivers or anything else. Certainly for us, yeah. Certainly for us, I'm on the forefront of it. It's um, it's very, very difficult to find those folks. You've got to factor in the Amazon effect as well, which I, I have seen a resume for someone forklift operator or warehouse labor. Uh, they've definitely got some sort of Amazon on their resume. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of those large, um, you know, those large retailers that are that are using a lot of that labor force. Uh, which makes it challenging in a number of ways for a you know small to medium sized business to try to operate in the same way. Uh, so that limits the pool to some extent, and uh, and then again, unfortunately, the quality has just not been fantastic in terms of what we've seen in the past in terms of having skills uh, mm. and having to now go to other ways of doing things in terms of taking off folks that maybe don't have the skill set that you're looking for but committing to the education and training process and banking that, you know, you've got a platform that that's viable for them to stay on board for a long period of time. So all those things sort of come into play. And at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a bigger challenge than, than it's been in our industry from my standpoint, at least in the 20 years. Hal is being modest. He deals with this every day. So it's being a little nice. I'm sure there's a brick brick next to his uh, screen. Yeah, he wants that thing was added to that. Um, but uh, like he says, the reality is, you know, again, adapt and evolve. You know, we're mm-hmm. we keep doing the same thing. We're not getting the results, so we, we're doing things differently. And uh, you know, changing pay, changing hour, just being more flexible, more creative. And the idea is, you know, if you get the right people, you know, they'll take care of the the dollars and cents themselves. So. Mm-hmm. We're really committed to trying to find the right people and get them on board or give them the skill sets or the tools that they need to be successful to help us help our client. And it's uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Certainly, um, the last couple of years since COVID has really exacerbated that whole challenge. Um, and we have felt it more so specifically on the warehouse side than in any other part of our business. Mm-hmm. You still have people you can train, you know, for logistics and, and, and import and export and domestic bills, cutting truck flow, getting drivers. But I think you hit a key point there is, uh, and, but that's where we have to be more successful as it's a product that we sell. It's a service that we sell. And this is where yeah. our clients are not accelerating. So we're actually becoming more picky about the type of clients we want to do business with. And, you know, not really something that, um, we would really want to do before, you know, obviously you got to balance yeah. time and cost, but we've been put in positions where uh, certain clients or certain prospects that come to us are just not a good fit because of the huge demand on labor of low margin. And, um, you know, an old friend of mine told me, he says, there's no, there's no bad freight, just bad pricing. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I agree. But if you uh, price it really high and you still can't cover, then uh, who's who's the bad guy? And you are. So, but yeah, we we've tended to be a little more selective and the type of business we bring in so that we aren't overtaxing certain employees and trying to kill people for it. And uh, I, I hear that too. And again, it's probably not spoken of a lot, but a lot of, a lot of people in my peer space, uh, they've gone to new minimums, dollars, thresholds, um, turnover counts before they'll even touch uh, a bid or an RFQ and RFP. And, you know, that's going to continue to, to up the rates of things as well. So that's a trend I think we're going to see for another while. It is. And Jim, this is evolution of a business, right? Um, as well, you know, you guys started in 2017, IGL. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting into that, that point where you, you do have to pick, you do have to be picky. You can't keep taking on every opportunity that they, because when you start, you know, you feel like you must take on, you can't turn down anything because of, you know, that, that need to survive. Uh, and then you get to a point where you made the mistakes of of taking on business that you shouldn't have, and you get to the point where you become pickier, and that is a good good place to be, because you you do want to be picky about profitability. Sure, I mean, and we say this to our clients, and I, I have, I'm very adamant about this to clients because some, and it really makes the decision easy for me. We can go through an RFP process, or your sales team can bring opportunities and. You might be, you know, 15, 30, 45 days into this cycle and you're having conversations with the client and their expectation is to just get to a certain number and you, you've already crunched yours and you see, well, that's mm-hmm. really not possible. Um, so I ask us, you know, if, if I could do it for 50% less, but it means I'm going to lose money every month, would you like me to do that? And if they answer yes to that, I'm pretty much just going to walk yeah. by. Um, you know, you have to be in a partnership and, you know, mm-hmm. you don't try to throw that word around loosely. And I know it's out there and, and it's meant with goodwill towards the majority of the people who put into it, but we truly do. We want to be in a partnership. We want to share in some of the wins and some of the losses, but we can't be the bearer of all the losses. And I think invariably a lot of, um, a lot of big companies are just bottom line and they look at that division and say, you know what? It doesn't matter what you want or what you have. If you're not here, we can't do business with you. We say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll just part ways. And so we, Maybe that's not being picky. It's just probably being good business sense. But we found that a good partner also wants you to be profitable so that you can reinvest in giving them good service. They don't have to worry about it. When you give it to me, it's handled. They don't want to look over their shoulder and babysit. I don't want to babysit somebody else. So I Mm -hmm. certainly would not expect in good faith if a client is conducting business with us that they have to babysit us or anybody in my industry. So it is a good point, valid point brought up that, you know, profitability is key. We, We keep saying we want to be fair. You know, but we don't want to, we, we can't do it for free. And if you expect us to do it for free, then you're probably, you know, not a great client for us. And there's a lot of clients out there in the logistics space who have that attitude. They might not want, you know, they might not be literal, but they, they, they come with that attitude and saying no in sales is a very powerful world. It gives you, it gives you control to, to, to be able to say no um, and, and have the ability and the courage to say no. It brings you better opportunities and it also turns the table on the negotiations that, that you're having now. Um, and I'll leave you guys with, with, with this. We'll talk about this as a, a final is that I, I'm sure both of you, Alan, Jim, have, have noticed this, but it's that the, those least profitable or the slimmest margin clients take up the most time and resources and are never, ever happy. 
and the larger margin clients are usually the most satisfied and they 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 they're not the, the most demanding they might be a little demanding but not a, above and beyond uh what you're making off uh, is that something that you guys have seen through your careers you 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 said it not us but i'll say it. <laughs> it is a phenomenon that is uh is strange um and does happen uh more often than you would think so you know it's just part of uh, any business has to deal with it i think the other challenge that goes along with this is you know five years ago if you asked me what it would cost to get a truck from here in charleston where i am to chicago i could tell you off the top of my head or how much would be mm-hmm. a container from ningbo to, to charleston i could tell you with a, within a hundred degree range what it would be and so the expectation on the customer side is well i know what this should and shouldn't cost and there's just no certainty with that whatsoever domestic or international um a lot of that from the COVID effect but um even ground transportation, I might have the same lane three days in a row. I'm paying three days for rights for it because there's so much variability. It's so much, uh, it's just, you can't trust what the numbers tell you, even when you're, you're looking at it every day. No, I'm, the cost of the 80, 20 rule is certainly in effect, Kevin. I feel like we, uh, we do, we do value our clients that, yep. um, are easy to do business with. Um, and, you know, we do work hard to try to keep the, the 20% or the 15 or the 10 that seem to cause the most, uh, burden on your resources and, and, uh, tax people. Um, you know, we, we've had to get to points too, where it just was untenable and mm-hmm. ways with some clients that really tax our resources and you personally and professionally, some of them were much easier than others to do. Uh, but the the alter effect that happens is if it's impacting your team and they see that you make the business decision, we're going to take this very large chunk of revenue off the table, but we need to replace it in order to do it. Here's what's going to happen. We see our team step up playing the, wow, I don't have to deal with that burden anymore. Yeah. I will work twice as hard knowing that it's going to go twice as smooth. So you know, and, and it's, it's, it's a tough effect. You know, we, I'm sure that most of those uh, relationships don't start out to be intentful that way. Um, mm-hmm. there are a few very notorious, um, companies and sectors of business out there that we have to do that with. And, um, you know, I, I think they're evolving too, though. I have to say that yeah. I've watched because they've been told no by a lot of people in the industry mm-hmm. and now they're reassessing internally, like, Whoa, we're not, we can't be the big bully in the room anymore, you know, now, cause yep. now, now you're, you're losing market share cause your competitors are just smiling and going past you and they're, they're paying the extra 2% and they're not worried about you're fighting for nickels, you know, and you're losing dollars and, and they're stepping over your dollars to pick up dimes and it's just a vicious cycle. So to your point, I think that's always going to happen and really um, just you know, keep a finger on the pulse of the business and try to work your best with the client so that it's a mutual win-win situation. That's our focus. Win-win. We all win. And making the right decision or, or making the right decision for you, the results don't always happen overnight. It, sometimes it takes years for you to to realize, or no, maybe not to realize, but to to be validated that this is how it was going to end. You know, everyone's going to tell you no, and you're going to to regroup. It might take two or three years, might take a, a decade, but it's it's going to happen, and you have to, to have that resolve to uh, stick to your guns, as they say. Yeah, an old, another mentor said many years he was celebrating his 24th or 25th year in business. And uh, 
Uh, he's getting congratulated about how hard it is. And he goes, yeah, it feels just like an overnight success story. Yeah. That sums it up succinctly. It's an overnight success. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're hoping for much the same, but, uh, it's a struggle. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun. This industry, we're passionate about it. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I always say if uh, to, you want an adventure, have a child or get into the freight industry. So one of the things that will cause you lots of challenges, heartache and stolen at night. <laughs> yeah. They both will. They both will. Um, well, thank you guys for, for dropping by, Jim, Alan. Yeah. Um, Jim, you're, you're headed off to Nashville. What what round is, I think, your nephew going to be drafted yeah, in the NHL? What, what's the projection for the round? Or has the oh, draft already happened? He's he's projected to go number 11 right now on the list. Well, um, so he's um, we're looking forward. we got a large family headed out there. So he's interviewed with every single team multiple times. Uh, he's a left four from Sudbury, Canada. He's Buffalo native, but we're... We're just proud to have him out there and uh, getting drafted. He's worked hard his whole life to get to this point. Uh, he's a big guy, but he he he's already he already acts like he's thirty years old uh, in front of media and crowd. So it's going to handle it well. We're just happy to get him out there. So we're supporting him out there and looking for a NHLer to be on the ice at first rounder to get out. So we're we're looking forward to that. Hopefully, Quint, Quentin Musty's his name. If you're looking for him on the draft, Musty. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks for, for dropping by and uh, ICL Logistics. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Alan. Any parting words? Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you bet. Absolutely. You bet. And yeah. Well, thank you guys again. Um, that's going to wrap it for this episode of Put That Coffee Down. You can like and subscribe. Find this on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts. And as always, on FreightWaves TV, every live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. We have a half-hour episode on that, and that gets into the podcast form as well. But see you on the next episode. I got friends, only want to talk business. I got expensive, because winning's expensive. I got expensive, because winning's expensive. I've been reading out of work, and I've been shutting out the stars.